Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. If you think that this year's Iowa caucus is proof that the U.S. is quickly becoming a banana republic, wait until you hear about the proceedings this week inside the federal court where the Venezuela embassy protectors are on trial. What would happen if the president of Haiti decided all of a sudden that the U.S. ambassador and the representatives are no longer representative of the U.S. people? And they turned it over to somebody else from the United States that was not recognized by the U.S. government. Would that be allowed? Because that's basically what the U.S. is doing right now when it comes to Venezuela. And then to the movies. What other flicks this year, aside from Parasite, offered sharp critiques of the neoliberal order? I speak with writer and activist Kamon Freeman. These are great films that we all should be distributing ourselves, showing it to our family and friends. These were great works of art and inspirational pieces. All that, Gerald Horn on white supremacists in the U.S. military, and much more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, with this week's victory in New Hampshire, presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders is the winner of the popular vote in the first two Democratic primary contests. But despite this achievement at the polls, his massive appeal among young voters, vast organization and fundraising machine, corporate media definitely dogs Bernie rarely bestowing upon him front-runner status, and in some cases, such as MSNBC's Chris Matthews, expressing such open hostility that it borders on maybe lunacy? Now, as Sanders looks toward Nevada and South Carolina, he competes against a field of center-right candidates that are divvying up the so-called moderate vote and that are about to be joined by billionaire Mike Bloomberg. The Bloomberg advertising-driven campaign was hurt this week when audio surfaced of him defending racist stop-and-frisk tactics of the New York City Police Department during his tenure as mayor there. They just keep saying, oh, it's a disproportionate percentage of a particular ethnic group. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those who witnesses and victims describe as committing the murder. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. That audio by Mike Bloomberg at the Aspen Institute in 2015 has thrown a wrench into his courting of the black vote as part of the hundreds of millions of dollars he has already spent across the country in outreach and advertising. To make matters worse for Bloomberg, that first audio this week was followed by reports of his 2008 statements blaming the end of home lending discrimination known as redlining for the 2008 financial meltdown. Well, here in D.C. this week, the biggest story in the progressive community is the trial of four activists, Kevin Zeese, Margaret Flowers, Adrian Pine, and David Paul, who occupied the Venezuela embassy here at the invitation of the Venezuela government after the Trump administration attempted a coup in Venezuela and ejected Venezuela's diplomats from the embassy compound. The $18 million embassy in the Georgetown section is owned by Venezuela, and considered sovereign property under international law. 
But the ongoing trial in U.S. Superior Court exists in an alternate universe where the jurors are told the president of Venezuela is not the elected president, Nicolas Maduro, but instead Trump's appointed puppet, Juan Guaido, who has never won a presidential election in Venezuela. And so the U.S. prosecutor is arguing that the Maduro government had no right to give permission to the four activists to occupy his country's embassy. I asked Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace, about the surreal proceedings inside the courtroom. I think your term surreal captures what we heard today. It's almost like being in an alternative universe where the positions of the United Nations, in which the U.S. is a member of, completely does not count. The U.N. recognizes uh, Maduro uh, as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Uh, But in this courtroom, that doesn't count because uh, the Trump administration engaged what many people see as an illegal action, uh, recognized uh, Juan Guaido, who's not even recognized by people in Venezuela or the opposition as the so-called president. Uh, But yet that legal fiction is allowed to stand uh, in this trial. As we go to broadcast on February 14th, the jury is deliberating on a verdict in the case of the Venezuela embassy protectors. If we hear news before our show ends, we will report it. Otherwise, please check for updates at onthegroundshow.org. On Capitol Hill, The House Oversight Committee approved and sent to the full House a proposal to grant statehood to Washington, D.C. The legislation titled Washington, D.C. Admission Act would provide its residents with two senators and at least one voting member in the House. There was also a hearing on white supremacists in the U.S. military, which we will have more on later in the show. In climate news, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Bill was launched by authors Senator Tom Udall and Representative Alan Lowenthal to protect public health, wildlife, and wild places from plastic waste. And there were several actions in D.C. in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en Nation, whose territories are being invaded by the Canadian police to secure corporate control and construction of the so-called Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. Solidarity activists said that under Canada's own law, under the United Declaration of Indigenous Peoples' Rights, and most importantly under Indigenous law, the Wet'suwet'en heredity chiefs have every right to stop Canadian police and coastal gas link from operating on their land. With a disproportionate number of new fossil fuel projects on Indigenous lands, Native communities are on the forefront of the struggle against climate catastrophe. And finally, in culture and media, the play Campaign 72 about Shirley Chisholm's historic run for the U.S. presidency is at the Eaton Hotel in Northwest D.C. for only six performances, February 22nd through March 1st. Information on Campaign 72 is on Eventbrite. Also, culturalcapital.com has several listings for Black History Month. And later in the show, movies of 2019 with a social justice message link that did not receive recognition from the Oscars. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all 
things that I should say Say them loud, say them clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars That keep us apart I wish you could know What it means to be me Then you'd see and agree That every man should be free This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for more international news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, there's so much happening in D.C. this week. But I wanted to start with the House Armed Services Committee on Military Personnel held a hearing on February 11th. And they had panels testifying about white supremacy, white supremacists in the military. And I know that's something that we've touched on and talked about on the show. Leisha Brook, Southern Poverty Law Center, Workplace Transformation Officer, testified and gave some details about her research into white supremacists in the U.S. military. I'm the daughter of a veteran of the Korean War. I'm the mother of a son who proudly served the U.S. Army for two tours. This issue is deeply personal to me. The white nationalist movement in the United States is surging and presents a serious danger to our country and its institutions, including the U.S. Armed Forces. Recent investigations have revealed dozens of veterans and active duty service members who are affiliated with white nationalist activity. This is far from a new problem. In fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center has been documenting white nationalists and white supremacist infiltration of the military and urging officials to take action since 1986. In that year, we wrote Defense Secretary Weinberger and exposed the fact that active duty Marines at Camp Lejeune were participating in paramilitary Ku Klux Klan activities and even stealing military weaponry for Klan use. In December 2019, As was mentioned, it was reported that the National Defense Authorization Act was altered in the U.S. Senate to remove the mention of white nationalists in the screening process for military enlistees. According to the 2019 poll that was referenced by the Military Times, 36% of active duty service members who were surveyed reported seeing signs of white nationalism or racist ideology in the U.S. Armed Forces. In the same survey, more than half of the service members of color reported experiencing incidents of racism or racist ideology. A number of plots by white nationalists have been thwarted. The arrest of Lieutenant Christopher Paul Hasten, a 49-year-old serving in the Coast Guard, provides a recent example. Hasten, who had also spent time in the Marine Corps and the Army National Guard, was recently sentenced to more than 13 years in prison. He explicitly identified as white nationalists and advocated for the establishment of a white ethno state. SPLC has identified dozens of former and active military personnel among the membership of some of the country's most dangerous white nationalists and white supremacist groups. Those groups include the Autumn Waffen Division, a neo-Nazi group whose members have allegedly been responsible for five murders since 2017. Brandon Russell, who launched Autumn Waffen in 2015, served in the Florida Army National Guard. 
after his roommate, Devin Arthurs, killed two other roommates who were also members of Ottumwaffen, police found explosive materials. A framed photo of Army veteran and Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh was found in Russell's bedroom. He also possessed flyers that read, Don't prepare for exams, prepare for race war. It appears Russell joined the National Guard in order to receive the kind of skills he would need to prepare for that potential race war. Altogether, investigators have found seven members of Ottumwaffen who have served in the military. Because of their sophisticated weapons and explosive training, those members significantly, significantly increased the group's potential to carry out deadly attacks. Russell has since been sentenced to five years in prison on charges related to the explosive materials found in the apartment. From prison, he has attempted to send instructions for building explosives to another member of the neo-Nazi group. The recent arrest of two trained soldiers, one from the United States and one from Canada, who belong to a terroristic white nationalist group called The Base, have heightened our fears that they are now forming paramilitary cells. In 2006, the SPLC released a report highlighting the continuing presence of white nationalists in the military and once again reached out to ask the Department of Defense to implement a zero-tolerance policy on white supremacy. And again, in 2008 and 2009, we wrote letters to the DOD urging investigations. Today, the SPLC offers the following recommendations. One, adopt and rigorously enforce a zero-tolerance policy on white nationalist and supremacist activity across all branches of the military. Two, require an annual report from military leadership that includes an audit of all investigations and resolutions of white nationalist and white supremacist activity. Three, blunt the reach and impact of white nationalist and supremacist ideology by offering support services that work to de-radicalize active duty service members and veterans exposed to hateful and violent messages. We urge this committee and this Congress to use its powers to purge from its ranks those who would mar the reputation and courageous work of our dedicated U.S. service members. Thank you. Okay, so that was Leisha Brooks of the Southern Poverty Law Center testifying before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Military Personnel this week. I'm joined by Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I wanted to get your thoughts. Well, this is obviously quite concerning. You might recall that there was a popular book written detailing how so many white supremacists have not only joined local police departments, but also the U.S. military. But in some senses, all of this was exceeded by a remarkable op-ed that appeared in the New York Times on Thursday, February 13th, by Ali Sufan, a former FBI special agent, and Congressman Max Rhodes, Rose of Staten Island, on the globalization of white supremacy, particularly the connections between white supremacists in the Ukraine, Eastern Europe, and white supremacists here in the United States. Unfortunately, these authors did not connect this to United States policy in the Ukraine, which, as we all know, has been attempting to build a beachhead against Russia, basically founded and grounded in the Ukraine. The authors point out that the terrorists, who you might recall in New Zealand, killed 51 in a mosque, that he had traveled to the Ukraine, he wore a symbol of the notorious Azov Battalion, which is quite active militarily in the Ukraine. Those who were involved in 
extremist activity in Charlottesville, Virginia in August 2017, had ties to the Azov Battalion, as did the assassin of British labor leader Joe Cox in 2016. That assassin had ties to the Ukraine. The authors point out that twice as many foreign fighters have traveled to the Ukraine to fight Russian and Russian allied forces in the Ukraine Twice as many have traveled to the Ukraine as traveled to Afghanistan during the zenith, the high point of that foreign intervention in the 1980s. This was coupled by a report by the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, which pointed out that white supremacists on campus are also uh, marching full speed ahead. Now, neither one of these reports, that is to say in the New York Times or the Anti-Defamation League, pointed out the obvious which is that we are concerned so much about white supremacy, not least because the U.S. authorities have been so diligent in recent decades in destabilizing the chief predator of the white supremacists, speaking of the black liberation movement and the labor left. And that is the ultimate reason why we are so concerned, gravely concerned about this tidal wave of white supremacists that are rising, but therein lies the mechanism by which we can destabilize these white supremacists. That is to say, fortifying the black liberation movement and fortifying the labor left. One thing I was really struck by after like listening to her testimony is the fact that the U.S. military is going all around the world engaging in what are acts of white supremacy. Uh, uh, the actions taking to assassinate the Iranian general, unprecedented, the invasion of Iraq, what we've done to Libya. It's not going to come up in this subcommittee, but it was clear to me that there's this disjointed way of thinking about white supremacy in terms of acts here at home and the threat of domestic terrorism versus what we're doing abroad. Well, I think that's also the point that was made in the op-ed from the New York Times that I cited, that is to say that white supremacy is a global phenomenon. The op-ed did also, also did not make the point that white supremacy is a major a prop of U.S. foreign policy, a major reason for being of U.S. foreign policy. And so you are correct to suggest that there's a certain lack of reality with regard to these congressional hearings Although I'd rather have them pay some attention to this issue than none at all. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of foreign policy, uh, U.S. soldiers shot and killed a Syrian, who they're calling a Syrian soldier or combatant this week in Syria. And that seems to be a situation that is uh, could rapidly spiral out of control. And so what what's the latest in terms of Turkey and Syria and break that down for us? Well, point number one is that the U.S. forces are in Syria improperly, if not illegally, because they're not there at the invitation of the duly constituted government. But what's happening is that this 10-year conflict in Syria is rapidly coming to a head. Recall that there was a United Nations process that was trying to bring the parties together, and that basically flopped. And now you have the so-called Astana process, and notwithstanding the fact that these talks reveal pictures of President Putin of Russia, the 
of Iran, Mr. Rouhani, and President Erdogan of Turkey, and then Central Asian city uh, of Astana linking hands and shaking hands, etc. The fact of the matter is that there is not unity with regard to all of these parties. What I mean is, is that Syria now features Turkey backed by the United States and religious zealots versus Russia, the Assad regime, and its Iranian allies, along with its Lebanese allies, including Hezbollah. Uh, Turkey and Russia are also in conflict in the Ukraine, as we mentioned on On the Ground just a few days ago. And Turkey and Russia are also on opposite sides with regard to the conflict in Libya. In some ways, what this reveals is a return of history. What I mean is, is that for centuries, a major motor of global politics was this conflict between Turkey and Russia. And despite the fact that Turkey has irked NATO and Washington by buying Russian missile defense, and despite the fact that Turkey and Russia, fortunately, are on the same side in Venezuela, uh, Turkey and Russia are in conflict in too many hotspots around the world. And this opens the door to U.S. manipulation, but perhaps even worse is that because of Turkey's relationship with these religious zealots, it gives them a new lease on life, I'm afraid to say. So finally, I think that President Duterte of the Philippines has been making some bold proclamations. You know, I guess Iraq isn't the only country that wants the U.S. out. Yeah, President Duterte of the Philippines has moved to break military ties with the United States. Uh, These military ties with the United States were part of an encirclement policy of the People's Republic of China, which is nothing new. Recall that it was in the 1500s that Spain, which was then riding high, conquered the archipelago we now refer to as the Philippines. And in fact, it was named after King Philip of (laughs) Spain, his Catholic majesty himself. And the archipelago still carries his name. And interestingly enough, in the 1500s, when Spain conquered what they call the Philippines, this was seen as a launching pad for Spain ultimately invading and conquering China, which fortunately did not occur. And you may also recall that it was at the end of the 19th century that the United States ousted Spain, not only from Cuba and Puerto Rico, but also the Philippines, uh, which led to a war, a bitter and bloody war between the United States and Filipino insurgents, uh, which led to the use of tactics like waterboarding that sadly and unfortunately are still with us. And you may also recall that a number of black soldiers were dispatched by the United States to fight in the Philippines and wound up defecting to the Filipino side and becoming leaders of the Filipino insurgents against the U.S. forces. I'm thinking of David Fagan in the first place. A number of biographies have been written about him. Now, today... The Philippines is seen, along with Japan and Australia and India, as part of this new encirclement policy of the People's Republic of China. But now a key link in that chain has been broken, which I think is good news for China, which still is struggling with this virus, uh, this so-called Wuhan virus or coronavirus uh, that is having negative impact on the economy. Well, what is the likelihood that the Trump administration's response is going to be similar to what it had to Iraq? Like, oh, we're not leaving. I I don't think they have that much of a choice. 
Uh, the Philippines is a major country. Its population is approaching 100 million. It's facing uncertainty of its own in the south, in Mindanao. And I dare say that it might be possible for those insurgents in the south to turn against the U.S. forces if the U.S. forces are so audacious and arrogant as to say they're not leaving when they're asked to. Hmm. Well, the struggle continues. <laughs> I've, been, <laughs> I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thanks, as always, for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. He's weak, arms are heavy, there's vomit on a sweater already Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop bombs But he keeps on forgetting what he broke down The whole crowd goes so loud, he opens his mouth Words won't come out, he's choking how? Everybody's choking now, the clock's run out Time's up, oh, snap back to reality Oh, there goes gravity, oh, there goes gravity Choke, he's so mad that he won't give up that easy no. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Following is my interview with the writer and activist, Kamone Freeman. And with the scent of the Oscars still in the air, we talked about movies from 2019 with a social justice message. Well, there were several movies released in 2019 with a social justice link, which did not receive recognition from the Oscars, as did the Korean film Parasite a pretty devastating critique of capitalism and the neoliberal order. And here with me to discuss these other movies with a message about D.C., imperialism, pollution, the corporatocracy, is the writer and activist Kamone Freeman, co-founder of WEAC Radio, weacradio.com. Welcome back to the show, Kamone. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, did you watch the Oscars? No, I didn't watch the Oscars, um, and I'm sorry I missed Eminem's performance. And, uh, I look forward to um, going back to uh, watch it. But when I heard that Parasite won, that intrigued me to go finally see the film. So definitely, Eminem definitely rocked the house, and Janelle Monae also did a performance in the beginning where she said, you know, Oscar's so white. <laughs> but... Definitely want to check out Eminem. So why don't we talk about Parasite first, because it did win the Oscar. Why did you like it? Well, first is the fact that a foreign language film finally won an Oscar because Americans and their, you know, American exceptionalism are pretty much the only market that refuses to watch uh, films with subtitles on the same, on par with every other country in the world. So that was groundbreaking in that effect. And then, of course, 
it was addressing classism in a very unique way without demonizing either and showing the struggles between the two. And I think it really resonated across uh, language barriers is why it was so successful. Because that classism structure exists in every society. So I should describe that Parasite, which won the best film of the year, best director, as well as best foreign film, is about a poor family, the Kims, and how they... I don't know if you want to say con their way into the lives of a rich family. They definitely manipulated it. <laughs> yeah, manipulated their way into the lives of a rich family, the Parks. And the film follows all the things that happen after that. So I was trying to figure out if the poor family was depicted in a way that made them seem especially malevolent. I, I felt that the, the, um, the writer took pains to ensure that both sides of the quorum couldn't be easily viewed as the bad guys. Yes, the poor people could con their way or manipulate their way into these people's lives and exported that. But you couldn't say they was the bad guys. And you couldn't look at the upper class, wealthy um, people in their condescending tones oftentimes as necessarily bad guys either. So I thought it was balanced. I won't disagree with the assertion that you made, but I think it was balanced. Okay, so it's hard to play a clip from the movie because it is in Korean, but I do want to play a clip that from the trailer. This is a clip when the family is in their home, which is like a sub-basement that always floods during the monsoon season, and they're trying to get a Wi-Fi signal. Oh, here! Jumped! So anyway, that's a scene where they're trying to pick up the Wi-Fi. But what also happens is that they have a job where they're all folding these pizza boxes. And at the same time, an exterminator comes to fumigate the street And the father tells them not to close the windows so the insecticide can come into their house and fumigate the house for free. And so the director sets up all these kind of really partly comedic, partly poignant scenes where you you see people like dealing with poverty in the best way they can. I have to say that I'm so glad that I'm so glad that Parasite won over 1917. Because this was another war movie. And I just assume, given the time period that we're living in, Mm. that this movie about war that really twists the history of World War I and really doesn't talk about the significance of 1917, that that was going to win. All right. So we both kind of had Parasite on our list as a favorite film, kind of dealing with social justice issues. So why don't you go to one of yours that you liked? Queen and Slim, hands down, no doubt. You know, there was a lot of backlash and conversation as as it should be. But what people fail to realize is that Queen and Slim was conceived by two black women and they had final cut on this, which means there was no white gaze that um, Toni Morrison dedicated her entire career to eradicating. And so that white gaze did not affect Queen and Slim. There was a white producer who had the basic story of, you know, the journey, but it was written by Lena. And um, so he had a partial story by credit. 
So it was written by a black woman, directed by a black woman, and it was also black producers, executive producers on this on this project as well. So I want to make sure that whatever issues you had with the film, it wasn't because of a white gaze. These were decisions that um, they made, and I loved it primarily because when the Judas who betrayed them at the end was counting his money, everyone I saw hated him for that. Right. And so when we talk about uh, people who have been, unfortunately, consumerism and materialism, even the money uh, the money loving people despised them for that and saw that that money um, wasn't uh, worth the lives of that wonderful couple um, at the cost of that. So, Where are you going? I'm going to find somebody with a phone so I can call my family. If you do that, then they'll know where we are. Great. What if they kill us? Don't say that! There's no guarantee they won't. You're a black man that killed a cop and then took his gun. I'm not a criminal. You are now. I just want to go home. And I want to see my family. If you turn yourself in, you will never see them again. is go forward. There is nothing back there for us. Please. Let's just keep going. So, what was what was the controversy? What was the backlash? Well, you know, people, um, black people need heroes. They choose symbolism over substance and you know, like why they couldn't get away and like, as we said before, why it had to be a black guy to turn a man. Because uh, he was supposed to be white. And she chose to, to embrace the pain. You walk towards you, we, we can't run from it. Because people are like, oh, why couldn't they get away like Ashad Shakur? Ashad Shakur did not get away scot-free. <laughs> she served many years in prison and was tortured. You know, she gave birth in handcuffs chained to, um, to a gurney. Um, you know, her child was conceived in a holding cell. So she did not get away. I don't think that's a great, accurate uh, description. Uh, there was a heavy price to pay. And I think that um, there's a lot of lessons in Queen and Slim, and um, it's an instant black classic. And I look forward to seeing it again. I've seen it four times already. Okay, so one film that I thought that really got short shrift at the Oscars, I'm not sure about the nominating process, if it got any votes at all, but Just Mercy. Uh, this starred Jamie Foxx and also Michael B. Jordan telling the true story of Brian Stevenson and his work to free, you know, wrongly convicted. And it really focused on the, uh, this one case in Alabama. So uh, I have to say that when I was watching Just Mercy, I really thought that the actors got robbed, that the, the story it told can't be told enough. So this is a clip from Just Mercy. The first time I visited death row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me. From a neighborhood just like ours. Could have been me, Mama. But what you're doing is going to make a lot of people upset. You always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most. Your life is still meaningful, and I'm going to do everything possible to keep them from taking it. You don't know what you're into down here in Alabama when you're guilty from the moment you're born. God. Mr. McMillan. We done here. Mr. McMillan, please. So that's a little bit of Just Mercy. Well, I have to quote um, Ava Devaney when she says that, you know, the we need to de-emphasize the significance of the accolades that come outside of our culture, the validation that we sometimes need. Because when we look at 
who won the Oscar three years ago? You know, we couldn't, you know, we had to look it up. You know, mm-hmm. who won the Oscar last year? And scratching your head. Having said that, I think it's much more important that Just Mercy was made and it was successfully received than it receiving an Oscar. And uh, I think that everyone should see that film. I think it should be shared in schools. I think it's an accurate depiction of where we are in the criminal injustice system in America. That is, it's not, it's, it's not in disarray. It's, it's not defective. It's functioning alive and well what it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that, you know, along with Ava DuVernay's film, 13th, I think it really um, drives that point home. And so shout out to Michael B. Jordan. He is not only starred in this, he produced it. Okay. He took this upon himself to make sure this movie was made. And so I think that that is a victory. Okay, so let's move along. Shout out to Dolomite. Very inspirational. Right. So what was inspirational to you about Dolomite? Ah, uh, man, you know, the, fa- the fact that he was having his midlife crisis and he reinvented himself was proof that it's never too late. And I think that the Oscar-worthy moment uh, for Eddie Murphy in this was when he was rehearsing in the mirror the night before shooting started. And he was remembering um, all of the negativity that his uh, stepfather had mentally abused him. Because people need to understand that there's also mental abuse. You know, just because you wasn't beaten as a child doesn't mean you don't have scars. And he was mentally abused by a stepfather who told him he would never be anything, could never do anything. uh, Because all he saw was sharecropping his entire life. So uh, he was, you know, there's a lot of dream killers that are actually in our family, in our circles. And we need to um, exercise those demons outside of those circles and love them from a distance. And he was doing that. And uh, that really spoke to me. There are two clips that I could play. One is with him talking about how he used to work with Red Fox. He was still working in the record store. Mm. and But as it turns out, he meant that he worked with Red Fox like in a laundromat or something like that. <laughs> it wasn't really. And then the other one, when he's coming up with stories for his film, ideas for his film, and he's working with like a more experienced writer, and he wants to throw in everything from like every movie he ever saw from that era. So he wants some kung fu in the movie. Right. He wants some uh, a woman kung fu army. Right. He wants an exorcist. Yeah, what throw he it says all it. on the yeah, wall and yeah. see what stick. Right. You know, but I have to say this: there, um, Dick Gregory got a big shout out in the film in the opening credits uh, when he's putting the records up. The last record you see him put up. It's Dick Gregory's album. And it's right. a very clear shot of Dick Gregory's album. And I thought that was very profound mm-hmm. um, that Dick got it. And then, you know, by mentioning Red Fox, these are shout outs. These are acknowledging the people that were, you know, that came before him. Right. And uh, I thought it was very important that um, he acknowledged those. And I wanted to thank him for that. This is On the Ground, and I'm Esther Rivera. I'm in conversation with the writer and activist, Kamon Freeman. But we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, and I'm Esther Rivera. I'm in conversation with the writer and activist, Kamon Freeman. 
founder of WEAC Radio, and that's WEACRadio.com. And we're talking about the movies from 2019 that had a social justice meaning, message, things that we can carry forward. And so for my film, and I, this might be the last one that we can do, I'm not sure, we're kind of running out of time. I wanted to mention Dark Waters. And Dark Waters is a film starring Mark Ruffalo, and it talks about a corporate defense attorney taking on basically DuPont, the chemical giant. Ah. And so this lawyer finds out that this community in West Virginia, where he's from, has basically been poisoned. And it's been poisoned with a chemical that people don't really know about, like in the 70s or 80s where this, when this movie is set. And it turns out to be something that's called, that we know a lot about now called PFOA. And PFOA is the material that they use to create Teflon non-stick cooking. And so I remember when I was first getting out of college and, uh, you know, I saw, um, you know, I was really interested in kind of like the healthy eating and stuff. Then I saw a doctor and she said, well, don't cook with non-stick cookware. And a lot of people don't know that now. She said, don't cook with Teflon. She said, either cook with cast iron, stainless steel, or glass. And I always remember that, and I've always done that in terms of cookware. And it turns out that Teflon, especially when it gets those scratches in it and it's, it's nicked up, that's putting this chemical PFOA in your system. And at this point in 2020, it is in the bloodstream, in the soil, in the air, all over the world. And it's nothing we can really do to get rid of it. But this movie is exposing really the the criminality of DuPont and other corporations that knowingly put this stuff into the environment that is poisoning us. Dark waters. Dark waters. All right. Yeah. I I have to check that out. Yeah. So the clip I have from Dark Waters is when Mark Ruffalo, who plays the attorney. Great actor. Yes. Yes. And Um, activist. Mark Ruffalo is paying the lawyer Rob a lot, and he is... Tim Robbins in this well? Yes. And so this clip is when Tim Robbins actually is playing the head of this law firm where this lawyer works at, right? Mm -hmm. And he's talking to the room full of lawyers about the case. Has anyone even read the evidence this man has collected? The willful negligence, the corruption? Read it. And then tell me we should be sitting on our asses. That's the reason why Americans hate lawyers. This is the crap that fuels the Ralph Naders of the world. We should want to nail DuPont. All of us should. American business is better than this, gentlemen. And when it's not, we should hold them to it. That's how you build faith in the system. Tim Robbins, baby. Right, that's right, that's right. Dark Waters. Dark Waters. So anyway, I think that may round out what we're able to go into depth with. I got to give a special shout out to Charm City Kings coming out in April. Everyone needs to see that film. Take a look ahead with you. It's a great opportunity to see young people corrupted and um, their salvation in the same film. Okay, well... We won't be able to get into depth with these movies, but I do have to mention The Report. And The Report 
covers a really important era in the United States, the post 9-11 period, when the CIA set up black sites around the world and was torturing people in search of certain kind of evidence, you know, to find whoever perpetrated 9-11. We went into Iraq. We did all these things to supposedly address the so-called war on terror. And we picked up a lot of people and killed a lot of people who had nothing to do with 9-11 whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And this film reminds us of that. It documents that. And it documents the ways that the spy agencies even turned on Americans and even spied on the Senate when the Senate was trying to get to the bottom of what was happening. Mm-hmm. So it's really important, the report. So that's a movie. Another one I saw was called The Brink. This is another documentary, and it really documents Steve Bannon's efforts to go around the world to kind of unite the far right and the his white supremacists. the white supremacists around the globe. The last black man in San Francisco. The last black man in San Francisco. We was involved with the screening here at uh, DC at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I urge everyone to see that. And also shout out to Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. These are uh, great films that uh, we all should be. Uh, uh, Distributing ourselves, showing it to our family and friends. These were great works of art. Right. As a writer, I was so enthralled to see the pieces I am because, you know, it was like in the theater just like that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't catch it in the theater, but I got a chance to see it recently. And she said something about, she said, I'm really smart in the morning. She said, I have to get up and write in the morning. I'm really smart in the morning. And it reminded me of my early years, you know, like right out of school or even in school, writing in the morning. And it reminded me how to go back and... How, how and, early would you get up? She got up at five o'clock with two kids. Well, it wasn't that early, but it was early enough to have my own time, my own quiet time before the day took over. Mm-hmm. And I think that as artists, writers and artists, we have to kind of... Whenever that is, it may not be morning for you, but yeah, it just I do it, late. it, it I'm just smart late at night. It, re- it reminded me to always kind of find that time before the world kind of takes over your day, right? Yeah. So anyway, we saw we talked about a lot of important movies from 2019, most of which did not get a mention at the Oscars. But you know, we want to uh, have our own framework and we want to have our own voice about our art. So we want to recap and talk about Parasite, Just Mercy, Dark Waters, The Report, Who Will Write Our History. I didn't mention that one. The Brink, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, Queen and Slim, and The Piece from Baltimore. Charm City Kings, go see it. Meek Mills. <laughs> All right. So I've been speaking with Kamon Freeman, writer and activist. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Come Thank on. you for having me. Hopefully next time will be one of our films. That's right. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the show here in D.C. this week, the biggest story 
in the progressive community is the trial of four activists, Kevin Zeese, Margaret Flowers, Adrian Pine, and David Paul, who occupied the Venezuela embassy at the invitation of the Venezuela government. After the Trump administration attempted a coup in Venezuela and ejected Venezuela's diplomats from the embassy compound. The $18 million embassy in the Georgetown section is owned by Venezuela and considered sovereign property under international law, but the ongoing trial in U.S. Superior Court exists in an alternate universe where the jurors are told that the president of Venezuela is not the elected president, Nicolas Maduro, but instead Trump's appointed puppet, Juan Guaido, who has never won a presidential election in Venezuela. And so the U.S. prosecutor is arguing that the Maduro government had no right to give permission to the four activists to occupy his country's embassy. So following is an interview I did on the opening. So following is an interview I did on the opening of the trial. And I should say that as we go to broadcast on February 14th, the jury is deliberating on a verdict in the case and of the embassy protectors. And so if we hear news before the end of the show, we will report it. Otherwise, please check for updates at onthegroundshow.org. So I'm here at the trial of the embassy protectors. I'm here with Paul Pumphrey of Friends of the Congo and Black Alliance for Peace. So what is your reaction? Well, it's clear that the government's argument didn't make sense. And that, in fact, its accuracy of describing what actually happened didn't make sense. And, in fact, the defense counsel pointed a number of points that the government said that was inaccurate and that actually the government lawyer actually apologized because, in fact, they weren't accurate in describing what happened. So I know that you were one of the people out there at the embassy, and and I think that at some point, I mean, as someone who was out there, I mean, wh- what are some of the inaccuracies that were glaring to you? Well, first thing, the government tried to make it look like that they had given the occupiers of the embassy plenty of warning that they were going to be arrested. And in fact, the defense counsel pointed out that the police actually came into the embassy, spoke with them for about an hour, the defendants for about an hour, and then turned around and walked out the door. And at none of that time did they actually say, if you don't leave the embassy right now, we're going to arrest you. But yet they come back and the state is using that as an argument that they had, that was a warning. And it wasn't a warning. But the other thing is quite interesting is how the United States is taking the position that the U.S. government can determine who is the head of state of any other government. And that so tomorrow the United States could decide that the prime minister of Great Britain is not Johnson. It could be somebody else. And all of a sudden, because they made that decision, that they now can turn around and tell anybody and everybody in the embassy that they have no right to be in the embassy and that they can pick and choose who should be in the embassy itself. Now, we know that the United States broke relationships with Iran. Never during that period of time did the United States then turn around and say, there's another government that's representing Iran, and so now they can 
occupy the embassy. Mm. All control the embassy. Basically, what the United States said was, okay, the embassy is closed. And to this day, that embassy has been closed. And they have not allowed for anybody else to occupy the embassy. Right, right. They wasn't representing the government of Iran. Right, right, the right. same thing happened with Cuba. Right, right. The United States basically said that they, they weren't going to have diplomatic relationships with Cuba. But never did the United States take the position that the government, whether it was led by uh, Fidel or Raul or the present president of Cuba today, um, that they, Cuba not pick who their representative would be. Yeah. So... All of a sudden now, here's a whole new scenario of how the U.S. government is now describing it has the power to pick who would be the head of state. And the crazy part is that the person the United States picked, who they claim was the head of the opposition, well, a few months ago, the opposition movement inside of Venezuela chose a different leader. And so the person the United States is saying is the legitimate president of Venezuela because he represents the opposition. He is no longer the head of the opposition. Right. So I think that you mentioned that the U.S. is, uh, and I guess the prosecutors are on pretty shaky ground because of this, because inside the courtroom, the prosecutors are making that argument as if Juan Guaido is actually the president and Vecchio, who was appointed as ambassador, was actually the ambassador. And actually, Vecchio was not even the ambassador anymore. He resigned. Exactly. Exactly. Well, again, the bottom line is, is that the United States has tried on numerous occasions to create military coups inside of Venezuela, and the military disagreed and refused to follow the leaders that tried to create the coup. And in fact, a couple of the leaders who tried to create the coup came to the United States, and now they're in detention camps here in the, in the United States as being undocumented aliens. So the United States has really consistently contradicted themselves over and over and over again. They're asking people to take action. After their action failed, then they turn around and say, well, we don't recognize you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when you think about uh, unprecedented actions in terms of international law, you have to even also think about the assassination of Soleimani. I mean, this is something that's unprecedented. So, and you know, when that happened, I remember someone saying, throughout all those years of the Cold War, serious Cold War, serious like nuclear standoff and everything, no, they never assassinated a Soviet leader. You know what I mean? None of that was ever done where like, okay, we're in this Cold War with you, it's really serious, and we're going to assassinate your your government. You know Why? It's because they're a nuclear power? It's because they're, they're white? You know what I mean? Right. So, and, and fact, so, so this is the same thing. Now, you know, when we talk about it's unprecedented, it's an unprecedented action against the people of color. Yes, very much so. And that, in fact, as you pointed out, they never did it with East Germany. They never did it with Poland. They never did it with anybody around the world until the people of the country made a decision to change their government. Now here's the United States trying to claim that they, re- that they are recognizing a government that not even the people in the country are recognizing. It makes no sense. It's just 
renegade type of politics that one can expect from the government that we have today. And the worst part of it is, is you just can't blame it on the Republicans because the Democrats are in lockstep with the Republicans on this position. Right, right. And you so Nancy Pelosi standing up and applauding at the State of the Union. So, but but I guess I what I'm trying to convey to the listeners is that all of this kind of upside down Orwellian views of the Trump administration are being reflected inside that courthouse. Correct. So that on uh, in the in the real world there is international law. In the real world, there is United States law and, and our adherence to certain international treaties. Inside that courthouse, none of that is happening. And we could take it a step further. Imagine what would happen if tomorrow that a government decided that the U.S. Embassy could no longer be represented by the appointed person of the U.S. State Department, that they could pick and choose who would be the one to represent the U.S. Embassy. Good or exa- that they, they didn't recognize the Trump administration. Correct. Yeah. Case in point, right now the United States has a $200 million embassy in Haiti. So what would happen if the president of Haiti decided that all of a sudden that that the U.S. ambassador and the representatives are no longer representative of the U.S. people, and they turned it over to somebody else from the United States that was not recognized by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Would that be allowed? Because that's basically what the U.S. is doing right now when it comes to Venezuela. Or the, the people of Iraq, they asked us to get out. We said, we're not, we're not leaving. We have a tremendous embassy and compound there, right? Right. right. So... And anyway. not only did they uh, ask us, not that we're talking about just the people, the government voted. Right. The right. government voted for the U.S. to leave. Right. And yet the United States has refused to leave. Right. So it appears that we have this type of uh, mentality uh, expressed by the U.S. government that they can do whatever they feel like doing, however they feel like doing, and recognize whatever they feel like recognizing. And even if the elected government... So it appears the United States doesn't care about democracy anymore because mm-hmm. you can have an elected government say, we do not want you in our country, mm-hmm. and the United States says, so what? Right. We're right. staying anyway. Right, and fighting court. <laughs> and fighting court about it. Okay. Right. All right, I've been speaking with Paul Pumphrey of Black Alliance for Peace and Friends of the Congo. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we are on iTunes, Google Play, under the title WPFW On the Ground. The music we play this hour included Nina Simone, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, Eminem, Lose Yourself, and Burn Sugar, What Rough Beast. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. You can, I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>